Righto, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your word that we read in the Bible. We thank you that your word reveals Christ to us. We thank you, Lord, that your word is living and active and it's just as relevant for us today as what it was for in the day when Matthew wrote it down, Lord. And Father, I just pray that today, as we study your word, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts, helping us to learn from you, that you would be transforming us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Righto. Uh, In Matthew, as we draw closer and closer to Easter, it, it becomes more and more apparent, apparent just why Jesus was crucified. Yeah, some people think that Jesus was a really nice guy and he never ruffled any feathers and, and um, never say anything to upset anybody. Um, now, the trouble with that view of Jesus is why on earth would anybody ever want to kill such a fellow? Well, Jesus wasn't at all like that. Jesus called a spade a spade and when he saw people um, who claimed to be God's people but acting in a way contrary to that. He was very open and forthright and, and said as much. And, and so we can see the animosity building between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it's, it's just bubbling away. It's not even under the surface. It's right there for everyone to see. And, of course, it finally boils over with the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And once again, the reading that we just had this morning is an example of this. In its context... It's all about how Jesus was rejected by Judaism and especially by its leaders. God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel and they had been rejected. John the Baptist was the the most recent prophet that had been sent. He was a righteous man sent by God and the religious leaders rejected him. But the ordinary folk were different. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes believed John and repented of their sin. And the the ministry that John the Baptist had was a grassroots ministry. It wasn't the religious leaders who were on board with it. It was just ordinary old people, people like you and I. And this was being repeated again now in Jesus Christ. Jesus was once again being rejected by the religious leaders But the sinners were the ones who were listening to him. The sinners were the ones who were turning from their sin. They were repenting and turning to God. Remember last week we talked about how the last will be first and the first will be last. And and this was it happening right here and right now. The religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to have been close to God, the ones who you think would be the first into the kingdom of heaven, rejected Jesus. While those who were seemed to be far from God, were coming to him. Now that's what it's all about. Um, But we've had a similar message week after week after week and we're going to continue seeing that because as we're working our way through Matthew, we're going to keep seeing this animosity build between the religious leaders and Jesus over and over and over again. But I'm not going to give you the same message over and over and over again. Who went... That was Roy, wasn't it? Was that Roy? I didn't even have to ask, did I? No. Um, so today we're going to be talk, going to talk about being fruitful for God. 
And I'm going to kick off with this heading. Showy religion without fruit is condemned. Uh, When I used to be part of a certain denomination, um, nearly every year I'd go away for church meetings and there'd always be all sorts of green motions that would be put forward. Motions that wouldn't actually do anything but made people feel really good about themselves because they were able to express their greenness. Now, and, and those motions would always get approved. Nobody would ever argue against such a thing because obviously God made creation nobody wants to go against it. And, um, but I remember one time someone led us in prayers and they prayed against those who cut down forests and they prayed against those who cleared trees for financial gain. And at the time was when um, forestry was getting closed down and there were little timber cutting towns that were really hurting. Now these were people who managed trees and kept them but, but who harvest them but these were getting closed down at the time. And it seemed like the, the green thing to do to pray for this sort of stuff. And I, I was a bit distressed about that. But in some conversations with some folk afterwards, I, I don't think I made any friends amongst the environmentalists when I questioned why the church was being caught up in these environmental political type arguments when there was real people that it was hurting. And I said, oh, it's sort of a bit tongue in cheek, I said, I don't remember Jesus saving any trees, but I do remember him killing one. Um, and that got a few hackles up. But why did Jesus kill the fig tree? Early in the morning, Jesus was hungry. He saw this tree. It was nice and leafy. And at that time of year, it should have had some early figs on it. They wouldn't have been tasting real good, apparently, at that stage, but it should have had some. So when he went over for a feed... There weren't any there. And so he cursed the fig tree and it instantly died. Now, that could be a good um, cure for flea bane, couldn't it, Justin and and Brad? Yep. Valpar. Yeah, okay. But do you think Jesus was being spiteful or angry um, because he didn't get get what he wanted? Why did Jesus kill that fig tree? Well, I can tell you it's not because Jesus hates trees. Jesus loves trees. Um, On the third day of creation, he created trees. He created trees that bore seed. He created trees that bore fruit. And what did he say about those trees? Does anyone know? It is good. It is good. So Jesus didn't kill the tree because he hates trees. When Jesus killed the fig tree... This was a living, breathing metaphor of Jesus' judgment on fruitless, showy religion. You see, the, the religious leaders were like that leafy tree. All show, but no fruit. And it's possible for us Christians to be like that fig tree. All showy leaf and no fruit. We can... We can be Christians who turn up for church on time. We can stand up and sing all the songs, we sing our hearts out and we can sit down at the right time, we can put our hands up in the air at the right time, we can have the Christian sticker on the car and the what would Jesus do bracelet on the wrist. We might know all of the big theological words and be able to speak Christianese with the best of them. 
we can make up all sorts of moral judgments on society and tell everybody else what's wrong in their life. We can do all of this and have all of the show of religion. We could even dress up in the robes and have the smells and bells if we wanted to. But we could do all of this and fail to live godly lives. Jesus condemns and judges those who do not bear fruit but make a show of their religion. So this brings to mind the immediate question, what does it mean to bear fruit? And some of us might think, well, to bear fruit for God means we have to do stuff for God. Well, it might include that. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here in this passage. To bear fruit means to respond to Christ. Now that doesn't mean to just say, yep, I'm going to follow Christ. It means to actually do it. Discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, is much more than just words. It's words and actions. To illustrate this, Jesus told a parable of two sons. There's a father who had two sons and he said to them both, right, oh lads, out to work, out to the paddock, you've got jobs to do. And the first one said, no. I think there'd be a few harsh words at this stage of the story if it was me that was the father, but anyway. First one said, no, but then later on he changed his mind and he went and did it. The second one said, yeah, yeah, I'll go and do that, Dad. But he never did. So Jesus said, which one did did his father's will? Well, of course, it was the first one. And Jesus concluded the story by saying to these religious leaders, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And even when you saw that happening... You still didn't change your minds and start to believe him. Jesus pointed them straight back to the message of John the Baptist and that's what he's doing with us too. If you want to know what it is to bear fruit, go straight back to John the Baptist and see what John the Baptist had to say. Who can tell me what John the Baptist's main message was? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Yeah. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And John John also talked about fruit and he said this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, God loves us just as we are. That's the only way we can come to God. God loves us just as we are. But he loves us too much to let us stay as we are. Disciples of Jesus Christ must be transformed so that godliness becomes a part of who we are. If the Holy Spirit, if God himself is living inside of you and if he's living inside of me, then there must be some changes taking place, don't you think? Godliness has to become part of who we are. One of the downfalls of us evangelicals is with our understanding of by grace alone and by faith alone because we tend to put it as a matter of words instead of actions. And so we tend to believe that if somebody 
says the sinner's prayer, well, that's it, they're saved, that's all good. But it's not a matter of words, it's a matter of the heart. I could teach a budgie to say the sinner's prayer. He wouldn't get it in order all the time, but every now and then he'd get it out. But it's not going to save the budgie. And way too often, some people view the, the sinner's prayer as some kind of life insurance policy. Where they say, yep, I've said the sinner's prayer, I've said it and I meant it, I'm a Christian, therefore if I die I get to go to heaven. But nothing's changed. Nothing's changed in their life. They're still the same old person they always were. They're still living in the same old ways that they always lived. There's the same sins that they've always struggled with are the same sins that are ruling in their lives. Well, let me give you a heads up. It costs God a great deal to save us from our sins. Jesus Christ descended from heaven. He lived in glory. Like Jesus didn't have to come and do what he did to get to glory. Jesus was already in glory and he stepped down into our miserable existence and gave his life a painful death to die for us. It cost Christ a great deal for him to give his life as a ransom to buy us back from sin. He has made a huge investment into us. And Christ expects a return on his investment. To illustrate this, Jesus told another parable, the parable of the tenants. There was a master of the house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went to another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Right? He's talking about what had happened in Israel's history. God had chosen Israel. He'd given them the promised land. But then he sent the prophets to them. And they mistreated the prophets. They killed the prophets. They dug pits and threw them into the pits. Some of them were sawn in two. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same. God sent more prophets and more prophets. Finally, he said to his, he sent his son to them, saying, "They will respect my son." But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, "This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance." And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes. What will he do to those tenants? Jesus was talking to the religious leaders and he asked the religious leaders, what will he do to those tenants? And they replied to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him their fruits in their seasons. And once again, he was talking about Christ being rejected by the chosen people. But listen to the punchline. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. We are the other tenants. Disciples of Jesus Christ will give Christ their fruits 
in their seasons. And what is the fruit? Well, there's all sorts of fruit we can bear for God, but what he's talking about specifically here is the fruit of repentance, the fruit of the Spirit, a transformed life. Now, I have to keep repeating this time and time again. We are not saved by what we do. We're not saved by doing more stuff. We are saved by the grace of God. And we are saved to become objects of his pleasure. We're saved to become a holy people, to become a royal priesthood, to become a people belonging to God in more than just words alone. Um, you ever had, put your hand up if you've ever had a new car. It doesn't have to be a brand spanking new one with that new car smell, but, but just a new car to you. Um, well, let me just tell you my story. Whenever I've gotten a new car, it's always started out with the very best of intentions. Like I've made this big investment and, and usually when you pick up a car, it's, it's in pretty good nick. Or even if it's a second-hand one, the first thing you do is you scrub it up yourself and you get it in really good nick and you vacuum it and, and you polish it and, and everything. And, and you start out with all the very best intentions, I'm going to keep this car good. I've let the other one go, but this one's going to be the good. And, and it lasts for a couple of months, maybe a couple of washes. Um, but before long, you, things start to slip a little bit and the vacuum cleaner doesn't come out quite so often. And... Um, yeah, it sort of gets to the stage where when you wash it, you don't even bother getting the chamois out to dry it afterwards. And, and then it's not long until, well, you just blow it out with the air compressor. And um, if, if it needs a wash, well, you know it needs a wash when the lights don't get out through the bugs on the, on the, on the headlights. And so just get the fresh cleaner out and, and hit it. Um, now, that's what I'm like with my car. Uh, but... Some people are far more fastidious about their car. I used to work with a fellow who had quite an old car, but he kept it looking brand spanking new. He, he just always put the effort into keeping it just so. Now, what care and attention do you put into your Christian life? You know, sometimes we make some, some big decisions. It's like getting that new car. I'm going I'm to get right with God and I'm going to keep myself right with God and, and um, scrub up my life a little bit where holiness seems to matter. But then at other times, our faith seems to be getting a little bit old and a little bit tired and, and holiness, well, that's just not something that we seem to worry about so much anymore. Jesus condemns fruitless, showy religion. Discipleship must be a fruitful experience where the Holy Spirit regenerates us into the holy people of God because that's what God desires us to be. And sometimes I get a bit frustrated with myself because I'm sli- I know when I'm slipping into the old car syndrome. Um, you, you know what I'm meaning by here. I'm not speaking just way out here. You know what I'm talking about. It's where we start thinking, well, I, I know I've been letting myself slip um, we've got the same recurring sin that keeps happening over and over again and Lord I know I need to change that about myself but it just doesn't seem to happen and, and you start to get frustrated am I the only one who ever gets frustrated or is there anyone else that gets frustrated that, that they can't change to be how God wants them to be 
There are times when holiness seems to be an insurmountable mountain, something we just can't achieve. Well, guess what? Faith moves mountains. When Jesus nuked that fig tree, the disciples were absolutely amazed, as I would be, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, I want to sound a little warning here. Some people take this little passage way out of its context and create what we call the name it and claim it theology, where you want a pay rise? Well, you ask God and you believe that you've got it and it's going to happen. Pity your poor employer who can't afford it. You know, um, you want a new Mercedes? Well, ask God for it. Believe it and picture that Mercedes in your garage and it's going to happen. You want to be healed? Well, you ask God for healing and believe that you are already healed. Believe that it is done and you will be healed. And if you're not healed, well, you've just got to believe a little bit harder. You're obviously still doubting. We could take that to any situation. You want more rain. You want your football team to win. And we ask God for all of these things. And if you believe it, then it's going to happen. Now, of course, there comes a little bit of problem with that. What happens when two... Two believers who go for two different football teams are both praying and believing that their football team is going to win. Obviously one's not going to happen. What about when the cow cocky prays for rain in the middle of the wheat harvest and his neighbour is praying for fine weather until the harvest is all done? This is not a name it and claim it promise that Jesus made that we'll get whatever we want. The promise that Jesus made was about answered prayer in the context of fulfilling God's will. If a mountain needs to be moved for God's will to be fulfilled, then you can pray with every confidence that that mountain is going to be chucked into the sea. Believe it and God will move it if that is what is required for God's will to be fulfilled. You see, way too often we start praying in accordance with our will instead of accordance with God's will. And we can come up with all sorts of reasons why my will should also be God's will. And we tell God that. Well, God, your word says this, therefore my will is your will. We've got to be careful about that when we pray. Do you believe that God will do anything to see that his will is done? Is God... Sovereign enough to do that? Is God powerful enough to do that? Of course he is. God will do anything to see that his will is done, but there's often something that stops that from happening and that's because we're not praying for those things. See, the key is to know what God's will is so that we can ask in our prayers for God's will to be done be able to ask specifically for God's for specific things that we know are God's will to be done. Because when we pray and ask for something that is God's will, we can have every confidence that God is going to answer that prayer. So let's bring it back to being fruitful. Do you believe that it's God's will for you to be fruitful in your life? 
that in your life that you would display God's righteousness? Do you believe that it's God's will for your life to be transformed, to become more like him, for the fruit of the Spirit to be developing in your life? Well, of course it's God's will for that. Therefore, we can pray and ask for these things. Lord, I know that I get too angry at times. Lord, I don't only ask for your forgiveness, I ask that you would change me. That's the way we need to pray and believe that God will change you in those regards. Pray and ask God exactly for these things and believe that God will change you for the better because he will. Forget about asking for the little stuff. Forget about asking for the money. Forget about asking for the fancy car. Forget about asking for all the little things that that we desire. God knows what you need physically. There's a verse I'm going to keep coming back to and I have been keeping coming back to it over and over again. Right back at the start of our series on discipleship in Matthew, we're at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you as well. This is where he said, Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about where you're going to live. God knows you need these things and God will provide you with these things. You start praying for the big things in life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek the fruit of God to be born in your life. So let's start praying for the big things. Let's start praying that God would begin to change us into the fruit of his sanctification. Let's start praying for a revival of the Holy Spirit in this little town of ours and throughout this district. Let's start praying for the love of God to be seen in us as we relate to those who are around us. Let's start praying for the return of Christ, that he would come back to claim his children. The kingdom of God will be given to a people producing its fruits. Let us be that people. And let us pray for God's fruit to be produced in us.